Welcome to the Rod and Arrow Outdoors podcast, where all things are hunting, fishing, and the outdoors. At RNA, we are public land DIY conservationists that like to share our passion for the outdoors. So join us and our pro staff team as we interview experts in the industry to share insight knowledge to help make outdoorsmen more successful. Hey everyone, this is your host, Lucas Pa of the Rod and Arrow Outdoors podcast. I just wanted to take a minute and say thank you to everyone and all our listeners. If I could sum up 2016 in one word, I would say it would be blessed. It has been such an amazing year, uh, both professionally but also personally uh, and also uh, from an outdoor standpoint. You know, the spring started out great. Uh, We were able to harvest some good Rio Grande turkeys. Then we rolled into the summertime, which for us here in California allows us to hunt black-tailed deer, which we had a great time doing that. Our fall season started uh, in Montana, where uh, in our group, uh, specifically in our Rod and Arrow Outdoors group, uh, we were able to harvest, uh, you know, four bull elk, uh, another couple antelope, a couple antelope does, we were able to shoot three whitetail bucks uh, and multiple whitetail does. So just very blessed and fortunate uh, this fall uh, in, uh, in 2016. And then to round out the year, I got to spend um, some quality time with a good friend of mine here in California hunting mule deer uh, and just had an exceptional time on that, on that trip. And uh, just a lot of good memories shared, not only uh, with friends, uh, but with family, uh, and just was able to uh, to have a really great time, uh, and uh, you know that's really what it's all about. So, again, I just want to wish everyone uh, you know a happy holidays, uh, and thank you all for your support. Uh, without the listeners, without you all, we would not be able to do this. Uh, and you know, part of our intent and mission is to give you all you know helpful resources. You know, we try to really. Um, help the do-it-yourself DIY hunter. And, uh, you know, there's millions of, of, uh, of licenses that are purchased every year. And uh, part of our mission uh, is to help those folks uh, and really give them information. Because I remember the first time when I tried to start doing this stuff by myself, I didn't have any help and it was tough. So we don't want those folks to have to go through that. We want to help you all with your adventures and journey. So anyway, uh, today's episode is going to be a great one. Uh, I'm not going to get into too many of the details uh, because I'm going to let... Uh, I'm going to let the podcast speak for itself. So anyway, thanks again, everyone. Happy holidays. uh, And we'll plan on seeing everyone back in 2017 for another great year. Thank you. Happy holidays, listeners. You are tuned into the Rod and Arrow Outdoors podcast. I'm your host, Lucas Paw. And today we are broadcasting to you from a cold and rainy central coast of California. If this is your first time listening, we thank you for your time. We also hope that you find our show valuable. If you're a subscribed listener, we want to just say thank you for your continued support of our podcast. Today in episode seven, uh, we sit down with an avid outdoorsman who actually was fortunate to spend some time 
hunting mountain goats uh, in British Columbia this fall. So as we do with all of our Rod and Arrow Outdoors podcasts, we always try to open up with some type of trivia or fun facts. Specifically, today we are going to discuss the Oriamnos americanos, which is the scientific name of a mountain goat. Mountain goats are actually native and indigenous to North America. As most of us know, you know, they span from, you know, northern, uh, the northern part of the hemisphere in Alaska, Northwest Territories into British Columbia, and spread out all the way through uh, the lower 48 in the Rocky Mountains. Mountain goats are actually not goats, uh, but are actually members of the antelope family, typically uh, used interchangeably. We, we tend to call goats an antelope and antelope goats and vice versa. So technically, they're actually not in the same class. They do have slender pointed horns that extend up and away from their long, narrow faces, obviously distinctly identifiable. Um, the goat horns do grow continuously and are never shed, unlike the antlers of an elk, deer, and moose. So again, to get technical, you know, a lot of our peers will interchange the use of horns and antlers. You know, horns never shed. So like goats, uh, also like bighorn sheep versus the antlers of most animals that we hunt, elk, deer, and moose that shed those, an- those uh, antlers annually. Uh, a goat's horns tell us the age of a goat, similar to the way the rings of a tree or the scales of a fish do. These rings form on a goat's horns each year, and the horns of a mountain goat will actually have one less ring than its age. So interesting enough, when you're going to determine the age class of the animal, they will use the actual rings on the, on the, uh, the horn itself. So a horn of a goat that, has, that is two years old will have one ring and so forth. A three-year-old uh, will have two rings on a horn and so on. So uh, it's just kind of interesting how you, know, you age similar to like a sheep, how you horn them based on the rings. Females have a big curve at the tip of their horns, while males have a slow curve uh, along the entire length. So why is that important? Well, when you talk to folks in the industry about trying to, you know, characterize male versus female, it's tough with mountain goats uh, because there are not a lot of distinct features. You know, we talked a little bit about how their curve of their horns uh, can kind of give that away. But if you don't have very good optics and can see from, you know, a far distance away, it's difficult to tell whether or not you're hunting a male or a female. Some will say the, you know, the body size of the animal is a little bigger based on it being a male. But what's interesting is talking to my peers and, and, and some of my friends, the distinct difference is, is first thing in the morning when you see them get up, um, you will actually watch them urinate. And if you watch a female urinate, clearly she'll squat like a typical female animal would versus the male standing there. So just some interesting fun facts uh, about mountain goats. You know, a lot of us have never had the opportunity uh, to, to harvest a mountain goat based on the fact that they are in most states, uh, you know, a once in a lifetime type of hunt where, uh, you know, you apply for, for many years uh, or build up points in a lot of the western states uh, to try to hopefully one day draw uh, a coveted mountain goat tag. So, in episode number seven, uh, I sit down with Craig Boddington. Craig uh, is someone that in, in our industry, both, uh, you know, an advocate and an ambassador of the outdoors, but someone that, that I've always looked up to uh, for many years. Um, about seven, eight years ago, I met Craig. I actually purchased a left-handed rifle from him uh, and in, ever since have just tried to uh, keep a connection with him and, you know, typically send him photos of some of my adventures uh, in hunts. 
Uh, Craig is a very accomplished hunter. Um, you know, he has completed the North American 29, uh, you know, the North American Bighorn Sheep Slam. I know he's, he's, he's taken multiple sheep. He spends a large portion of his time working with conservation groups. Um, we're going to talk a little bit about an anti-poaching effort that he worked on over in Africa. Uh, and really is, is someone that is, uh, you know, an, uh, an advocate around protecting our right uh, to bear arms. But really through it all, you know, he's a great man. He's got many stories to tell. He's actually my neighbor. Oddly enough, uh, we probably only live about five minutes away. And unfortunately, we don't get to catch up as much as we would like to often based on our busy schedules. But uh, it is nice to be able to sit with Craig and have a discussion. So without further ado, I want to welcome both professional hunter and decorated Marine to our podcast, Mr. Craig Boddington. Hey, thanks, Lucas. It's good to be here. Thanks, Craig. Uh, so maybe just tell us and open up kind of, you know, who is Craig Boddington? Well, uh, I'm from Kansas originally, and uh, my dad was a, a bird hunter. You know, when I was a kid, we didn't even have a deer season in Kansas. And so uh, I started out uh, on, on quail and pheasant, but I was just fascinated by, by wildlife in the outdoors. And uh, uh, when I was a teenager, dad and I started going to Wyoming to hunt pronghorn and mule deer. And you know, it just kind of snowballed from there. That's cool. Yeah. So do you remember some of those memories as a kid hunting with your dad? Because I know some of the, the better memories I have of hunting as a kid were with my father. Oh, absolutely. And with my grandfather as well. They were, they were all bird hunters and we usually had pretty good bird dogs. And of course we had a, a lot of quail in Kansas back then. We, we really don't anymore. We've got whitetails, we've got turkeys, which hardly existed when I was a kid. But, uh, yeah, some great memories of hunting hunting with Dad and, and uh, uh, still miss him. Yeah, absolutely. I'm right there with you. Um, maybe just tell us a little bit about, so you're a, obviously a decorated Marine uh, in the Marine Corps and spent a, basically a career with the United States Marines. Maybe tell us just a little bit about your background in the Marine Corps. Well, I got a, a Navy ROTC scholarship to the University of Kansas. I, I guess I could have gone someplace else, but that was the only school I wanted to go to. Family's always gone there, and, and I've got a daughter who's graduating from there in May, so uh, that was family tradition to go to University of Kansas. But I had a Navy scholarship and took the option of going into the Marine Corps from there. I, I did five years active duty and uh, uh, got out and went to work. Uh, within a year, I was working for Peterson Publishing, but I stayed in, in the reserves and uh, uh, really uh, retired oh, with 31 years service, so I had a, I had a great career. And uh, in those days, uh, Bob Peterson was fortunate. Uh, I was fortunate to work for him, and he let me do it. And so I spent uh, quite a lot of time on active duty. I, I was uh, really just a drilling reservist until the first Gulf War, but then, of course, we all got called up. And after that, it got busy. But by then, I'd left the office, so I just kind of kept a sea bag packed. And uh, the Marine Corps is chronically shorthanded, and so I would keep a sea bag packed. And uh, the operative word was was volunteer because that didn't count against the congressional end strength. So somebody'd call and say, "Hey, Craig, uh, would you like to volunteer to go to this place or that place for six months?" And I'd say, "Sure, I'd love to volunteer to do that." Yeah, I, I wouldn't mind volunteering to go to probably some of those places that that you were asked to go. That's cool. Um, you know, one of the ways I actually, um, you know, I've known Craig um, for a few years. I actually purchased a rifle from him about seven, eight years ago. But when I was preparing to go to Argentina for one of my big game hunts, uh, I actually read uh, your book, Big Game Argentina, cool. and I was reading through that. And it was interesting. 
um, some of the stories and it kind of, it just aligned me and got me ready for, for my trip, uh, to the La Pampa area that we went to back in 2006. So that was, that was neat. And that's kind of where I started getting into uh, a lot of some of your, um, articles that you write. I get the SCI magazine. So I read some of the, uh, some of the articles in there, uh, and just a couple other, uh, you know, areas where, you know, we've seen some of your written careers and Peterson's publishing, like you said, guns and ammo magazine, Peterson's hunting magazine. Um, obviously the Boddington experience is, is on TV and we can see that show, uh, online as well. Uh, roughly around 4,000 magazine articles, authored 25 books and over 500 TV episodes. Is it crazy to think looking at those stats that you've had that type of impact uh, well, in the industry? <laughs> hey, in all cases, the first one was the hardest. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so maybe just tell us a little bit about, um, you know, you know, writing is something that, you know, doesn't always come easy to folks. A lot of people, you know, like to hunt and like to share that experience, but they have a hard time putting it on paper and writing about those experiences. Where, kind of where did you get that passion for writing? Well, I think if, if it doesn't come easy, you probably should be doing something else. Uh, I'm the most non-mechanical person in the world. I can barely change a tire, but I, I can spin words real fast, uh, English degree. And when I was a kid, I, I knew I wanted to write, but I didn't really know what I wanted to write about. And that, that really just sort of developed. Obviously, I have a passion for the outdoors, and, and I was lucky that the two came together, and so I've, I've done that for a long time now. Uh, and I enjoy the writing. The, the writing is, is really fun for me. It's, it's not difficult. Uh, it, it sort of moves itself along, and I, I really I think of myself as a, as a journalist first and foremost. Uh, we do television today because, hey, it's a multimedia world, and you have to do internet and you have to do TV to, to be uh, as relevant as, as you might want to be. But, but I love the writing and sitting down now at the word processor and uh, trying to spin a story. That, that's not work for me. That's fun. That's cool. Yeah, it's neat to read your articles because you can almost relive some of the experiences uh, in, in a lot of the uh, publications that you write. But just to kind of flip that, so talking a little bit about the TV episodes, is it is it difficult to to do some of those TV episodes in terms of like some of the reenactments that happen and kind of being on a script versus you know when you when you can write you just let it pour out and it happens but I would guess TV is a lot different. Well, TV is a lot different and what I tell people is the best way I know to ruin a good a good hunting day is to take along a TV camera because <laughs> it's uh, it's an appendage. Uh, you do get used to it, you know. Initially, it's it's very very difficult and and. Uh, uh, the longer you do it, the more you're able to ignore the camera. And, and the hardest part is forming a team between uh, you and, and the guy that's operating the camera, or the, in some cases, the, the woman that's operating the camera. Uh, it, it has to be teamwork. And it's really, you know, the, the camera person uh, can uh, make it real smooth or, or can make things really difficult, can make you look good or, or make you look bad. So it, it's very much a team. And I've been really fortunate to work with some great camera people that have remained really good friends and and that helps that helps tremendously but now that said you know i've got uh, colleagues and peers that just absolutely love the tv camera i don't love it i've learned to deal with it yeah and that's about the best i can say is i've learned to ignore it yeah no that's cool i when i was in uh, new zealand uh, a few years ago i was there with a buddy of mine from worldwide trophy adventures and they had brought out a camera crew and uh, they were actually 
uh, on this hunt to try to um, you know publicize this hunt as a part of uh, as a part of their business and their and their uh, their their presses that they do. So what was neat about it was is they went out with me on my red stag hunt and uh, you know I had never had a camera guy. I mean I've had some amateur camera guys where you know we go out in Montana every year and, and video our own hunts, but you know this was a professional camera guy and it was interesting. Um, you know this guy was a hunter so. I think the difference was, is he understood, you know, where he needed to be and where he needed to go versus, you know, some folks that do videography may not be outdoorsmen or may not be hunters. So they may not understand the angle or where they need to be when you're setting up for the shot. That, that makes it rough. I mean, I've been fortunate. My camera operators have all also been hunters and, and, and that helps a lot. But, uh, you know, generally speaking, the, the camera person is trained. But in the outdoor television industry, uh, none of us are trained actors or we're all self-taught. So the best thing is, is not to try to be scripted, but just to actually capture the action as it happens. Now, you know, you, you do have to do reenactments because really to do it properly, you should have two or three cameras out there. Usually you've only got one. And, and mm -hmm. so you, you do have to do some reenactment to cover the angles. And, you know, a smart viewer can obviously tell when when you're acting and when it's when it's for real and, and that's unfortunate but that's one of the realities of outdoor tv is it's hard enough to get up on an animal by yourself it's it's a lot harder with you and a and a camera operator and man if you tried to add two or three more cameras wow yeah complicates it even more huh okay um, so let's talk a little bit about, um, you know, 2016 this year. It's it's actually been a busy fall for both of us. Uh, we've kind of been texting back and forth and sending photos. But I wanted to just kind of go through line by line and talk a little bit about, um, you know, where you've been this fall. Talk about some of the adventures that you have, um, some of the animals that you've harvested, uh, and really just understand, uh, you know, some of the, the the highlights of some of those trips. So the first one I know that you were going on, and you and I actually had trained a little bit. We did a hike together before you left. Was on your British Columbia trip, um, specifically looking for I think mountain goat, which I think your wife was going after Donna, and then you had talked about a bear hunt and also a caribou hunt. Tell me a little bit about how that adventure went. Well, if you like sitting in a cabin in the rain, that, that was a wonderful hunt. Oh, geez. Uh, we, we were with a really great outfit and they do have cabin camp, so it wasn't uncomfortable. But, uh, you know, in, in the north, the weather is a, is a major factor. And uh, I had a goat tag and I had a bear tag and I had a caribou tag and never fired a shot. I think we had three and a half days of, of huntable weather out of, oh. out of two weeks. And uh, so it was a little bit rough. But, you know, I've, I've hunted all these animals before and it wasn't really important. What was important was for Donna to get a goat because she's tried before and hadn't worked out. So uh, uh, with the good weather we had, we were able to make a, a couple of hikes up the mountain and we got her a, a really good goat. And, and uh, I went with her, so it was a shared hunt. And... Uh, you know, she got a nice goat, and I didn't need one that bad. That's cool. Um, was part of the issue in a place like British Columbia, is it visibility when it's raining? Is Absolutely. it just you can't see? Is that the issue? Yeah, it's not a matter of you're going to melt because you're not. But with with any mountain hunting, if, if you can't see, you just can't hunt. Yeah. And yep. So we had low clouds. The rain's nothing, but we had low clouds and fog and, and just uh, couldn't couldn't see. Yeah, yeah, that's that's an issue. What what type of species of caribou um, were you actually after in British Columbia? Well, it was mountain caribou. Mountain caribou. Uh, okay. BC is uh, 
probably the famous place to hunt mountain caribou, but like so many caribou herds in North America, that, that population is way down today. Yeah. They're, they're not even totally sure why, but uh, the, the mountain caribou are down. So that was kind of a long shot. Uh, uh, I'd been up there a couple of years before and we'd seen a particularly large grizzly and that's really the bear we were looking for. And we, we saw other bears and, and, and passed, but we never saw the bear that we were looking for. And, and again, we had just so little glassing visibility. That's, and the main event yeah. was Donna's goat. Yeah. Well, that's neat that she was able to harvest uh, on a really nice goat. I saw photos of it on, on social media, and uh, you could tell by the expression on her face how happy she was after, after getting and harvesting that animal. Well, and, you know, we'd, we'd failed before. Uh, and on any mountain hunt, there, there's, there's no guarantee. And uh, we uh, was way up at the top of the mountain, and, and of course, goats will often go for the rough stuff if they have if they have any capability left and uh, everything was perfect until the goat managed to just move a little bit and started to roll and i i'm sure that goat rolled a thousand feet down the mountain wow wow <laughs> so pictures you saw were pretty dirty but the hide will clean up just fine. yeah absolutely <laughs> uh what rifle was she shooting on that trip uh she was shooting a blazer in 270 winchester oh very nice very good okay very cool so then we transitioned. So I think that was in the end of August, September. And then I think you had made a trip out to Africa. Yeah, the end of September, we went to Mozambique. And that was, okay. a, that was a lovely hunt. So what were you guys doing out in Mozambique? Well, it's a place I've been a number of times. And, and what I love about it is, uh, and so rare in modern Africa, is uh, the outfitter's done a really good job with, with managing his area, with, with anti-poaching and, and with... Uh, just keeping the habitat in, in good shape. So I see it getting better every year. We were mostly hunting buffalo, but there's a lot of other plains game around. But really, it's just, just a great area because you see so much game there. Was that part of the uh, initiative that you had been working on in that area around some of the poaching that was happening? Well, we did a documentary on their anti-poaching efforts last year, and, and we did film this hunt for, for television. And it really, it's a great area to showcase because... This particular area is is managed strictly for hunting. Uh, there's no national park nearby, so there's no photographic industry in the area. The uh, the wildlife management is funded entirely by hunters, uh, and uh, the World Wildlife Fund does manage the nearby reserve. And, and in this particular area, they're totally supportive of sport hunting because it works. Uh, the in this area, in uh, about 1970, there were 40,000 buffalo. Uh, wow. When Mozambique Civil War ended about 18 years later, there was less than 1,200 remaining. And the count in the reserve last year was 24,000. This year, it'll go well over 25,000. So that's neat. That's an incredible recovery in the last 25 years. And it, it's strictly because of, uh, of sport hunting and, and the, the funding that they've put into the area. Yeah. It's amazing when you look at how conservation, I mean, hunting is conservation and how you can manage that. Was there, was a lot of that due to poaching based on those numbers significantly dropping that they oh, ab think? Absolutely. During the, during the war, the, uh, uh, both sides were, uh, uh, were subsisting off wildlife. But, but, uh, what really happened in that area is, uh, the Russians parked a refrigerator ship offshore and they were, uh, machine gunning the, the buffalo with uh, helicopters and oh, picking geez. them up and taking them out to the refrigerator ship. And, and so that was the, the real decline in that area was basically commercial poaching. Wow, that's too bad. 
So were you successful when you went to Africa? Did oh, you absolutely. harvest we had any a animals? Trip. Yeah. Yeah. Don and I both got good buffalo on the same day, and uh, we took a uh, some other species of plains game, and then she. Uh, she got a, a nice crocodile on the Zambezi River. Oh, cool. And they have a huge problem there with uh, uh, crocodiles still taking villagers. So everybody's pretty happy when a crocodile is taken. I bet. Wow. Yeah, actually, when I was uh, when we spent some time in Australia, we got to see some crocodiles, and uh, they are much larger than alligators. Because I've been to they Florida and there. I've and I've I've seen some alligators, but crocodiles are a completely different level than than alligators are. That's cool. Um, can you explain a little bit about just in terms of um, topography and where Mozambique kind of sits in Africa? Well, Mozambique is uh, shaped a little bit like California. It's, it's long and narrow. And uh, so it has a tremendously long coastline uh, along the Indian Ocean. It has Tanzania to the north and then to the, to the west are uh, uh, Malawi, uh, Zimbabwe, and, and then South Africa. Okay. So it sits more on the, yeah, the on eastern the, uh, e- eastern the east side, coast. east coast, coast, east coast of the of the country. That's cool. Okay, so then uh, we'll kind of segue. So then you spent some time in Oregon. I noticed you went on a blacktail hunt. How yeah, did that I did, go? Uh, uh, did a blacktail hunt in Oregon. Uh, this with with an outfitter, a guy named Robbie Berg, and he's he's really good. And uh, we did that for uh, the. Uh, uh, expedition safari television show with uh, Mike Rogers Jr. and it was a it was a great hunt. We uh, saw a lot of deer and and everybody everybody got pretty nice bucks. It was a good hunt. And whereabouts in Oregon were you at? Out of Roseburg. Okay. Central West Central Oregon. Okay. And in terms of blacktail, what are we talking um, like a Columbia blacktail? Yeah, Sika those black are tail? Columbia. Columbia's in that tail. area. Okay. And have you hunted? in that area before or hunted in Oregon? Yeah, I have. I've, I've hunted uh, both blacktail and Columbian whitetail out of Roseburg before. It's a, it's a nice area, very pretty area. And is that um, area, is it kind of like rainforesty, like you imagine in no, Oregon? No, it, it, it... it's not. This is, it's a transition zone, so you have, uh, really it's not much different from around here. Brushy hills, okay. a little bit of forest, but it's nothing like the, uh, the climax rainforest you get into on the West Coast. Okay, very cool. Okay, and then uh, you spent some time in Kansas as well. I know that uh, you've got a place back there, and uh, you typically spend quite a bit of time there in your off time when you're not here. So how did your uh, Kansas expedition go? Well, the Kansas hunt went really well this year. We had, uh, uh, I think we had 10 hunters in and then plus me. So we had uh, 11 hunters, and we wound up taking uh, seven whitetails for 11 hunters, which is, you know, that. For our area, we're a heavy timber area. That's that's pretty good. Uh, very happy with the year. Uh, we did some bow hunting early, and then uh, rifle season starts the Wednesday after Thanksgiving, and that's really what what we focus on. But we were fortunate. We had some nice crisp weather the first few days, and the season started uh, a little bit early this year, and uh, so we had real good rutting activity for the first few days, and it, it was it was really a a darn good whitetail season. That's I cool. kind of, my neighbor and I pool our resources and he sort of acts as the outfitter and I sort of act as the chief guide and it's fun hunt. That's cool. So when you guys are in Kansas, is this kind of a boots on the ground type of hunt or are you guys uh, sitting in tree stands? No, or it has to or? be stand hunting. We're in yeah. a real thick timber area. It's not the, the wide open Kansas you think of. We're in the southeast corner 
and it's uh, kind of oak ridges. And, you know, if we'd ever get a foot of snow, then you could do different things. But I've had this place 10 years and haven't yet seen snow during deer season. So wow. we don't have any choice. The, uh, the, the, it's like uh, walking on cornflakes in the woods with all the oak leaves, uh, very noisy. And so we have to hunt from stands, which is certainly not my favorite way to hunt, but it, it's really the only option we yeah, have there. Yeah, that makes sense. In terms of trophy class, I know um, when I read about Kansas and whitetails, it seems to be one of the obviously premier places in the United States to whitetail hunt. It, is the trophy class in that area, um, you know, pretty good size animals that you guys are harvesting? We have good whitetails. I wouldn't say we're in the state's best trophy area. And I, I think uh, when you get a little bit further north and, and much further west where the, the country is a little bit more open and the bigger bucks are a little more vulnerable and easier to pattern, then, then uh, the potential size goes up. We've got big bucks, but we generally don't take the biggest bucks we know about. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's cool. Yeah, I've always wanted to go to Kansas. That's kind of one of those places. I, I actually grew up on the Milk River Valley in northern Montana. So well, that's a lovely country. Yeah, so uh, we know a lot about whitetails up there, and we also know a lot about cold weather. Uh, last week, my mom had texted me and said it was minus 39 with wind chill. Wow. Going through that that Siberian cool wave that, no, we that blew through. we don't have that in southern Kansas. Yeah, it doesn't get that, it doesn't <laughs> no. get that cold. But uh, we used to harvest some really large bucks uh, on the Milk River Valley, and... Uh, and they're still there, and it's a it's a great place for whitetail hunting. And that's always kind of been uh, near and dear to my heart because that's actually where I started hunting when I was got my first license. Uh, my dad took us on the Milk River Valley, and we spent a lot of time whitetail hunting. Um, and I was actually was shooting lever action thirty thirty, so which is a good whitetail. Fantastic, yeah, not bad. Very good whitetail. In our country, I think I've got twenty four stands out uh, between my neighbor's place and mine, and there's really only two where a shot beyond 200 yards is even possible. And in most of them, the shots are less than 100 yards. Yeah. And yet, we've been kind of outfitting there for five or six years. So I guess we've had 50 or 60 people in. Uh, everybody brings a scope-sided rifle, usually something very flat shooting. Have yet to have anybody bring a 30-30. Yeah, that would be cool. Yeah. Yeah, yeah and I've, I've always thought that, you know, there's not a lot of applications for, for the lever action, um, you know, type guns with the open sights. But... When it comes to beating down bush and being in you know river bottom whitetail country, that 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 caliber works really well. It really does. Yeah. Okay, uh, and then uh, I think recently you just spent a little bit of time over in Georgia, um, continuing on kind of that whitetail spree. Tell us a little bit about how that trip went. Well, I've got a I've got a friend who has some uh, a place in southern Georgia, and it's a it's a timber, it's a, a basically a block of of timber managed for timber harvest and. Uh, but they put in a lot of food pots, and uh, just it's just a fun place. Uh, I didn't, never saw a decent buck. The the uh, uh, the weather turned on us. It got a little bit too warm, and the rut shut down. And hey, that happens. But uh, uh, I love going there because they're really nice folks and, and good friends. And it's a place where the buck of a lifetime might step out at any minute. So yeah. you just kind of have to be patient and realize that sometimes it's going to work, and sometimes it isn't. When, when you compare, so, you know, you, like you say, you do a lot of whitetail hunting in Kansas and, and then you kind of, you know, you, you transition over to a place like Georgia in the South. I mean, 
what do you see in, in a comparison if you were to compare the two? Are they are they similar? Are they different uh, in terms of the habitat of the whitetail? Uh, is the obviously the climate's different? But how do you see those two locations different? Well, my place is is Oak Ridges, uh, and we've we've got some elevation and some hilly country. Uh, the place where I hunt in Georgia, and I don't go every year, but I go pretty much every second or third year down there. Uh, it's pine forest. And so you're hunting uh, cut lines in the forest. You're, you're hunting uh, uh, a huge power line right of way that's about 100 yards across and 5 million miles long. So, you know, some of that country, you actually uh, have the potential to reach out a little bit. And in, in my part of Kansas, you really don't. Uh, obviously, in western Kansas, it's altogether different. So, it, you know, you're always hunting whitetail the same way. You're hunting rub lines, you're hunting scrape lines, you're hunting trails, uh, you're hunting food plots. So whitetail hunting is, is pretty much the same wherever, wherever you hunt them, but the country does change quite a lot. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I think of when I think of Georgia. I think of deep, you know, heavy pine forest versus Kansas. I always think of, you know, wide open, you know, meadows and grain fields. And uh, I spent a little bit of time in Florida uh, a few years ago in in parts of kind of the, you know, the, the deep forest. And that's kind of what, when I vision Georgia, actually spent a little time in Savannah too. So I got to kind of see that transition. So I, I've always wondered what that was like uh, hunting whitetails. Cause you know, you see it on TV, but you always wonder, you know, what is it like when you get into it? So. Well, and one thing about whitetail hunting, and it's a little different in, in Montana where you can actually glass them and stalk them. You can't do that in my country and, and you can't do that, uh, where I hunt in Georgia now, before the Kansas season opened, I, I went up to Western Nebraska, and that is country where you can you can glass and and have a chance for for stalking. But in so much whitetail hunting, really from east to west, the deer's got to make the last move. You can set up in the the best possible place, but the deer still has to step out of the woods and show himself. And boy, if they're not moving, it can get tough. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And that is a good point when you when you talk about hunting in areas that are a little more open, maybe rolling hills that you can glass. And, you know, if it's not a spot in stock, at least, you know, find a good buck and, and try to make a, a play on them. But in these cases, you know, when you're sitting in a stand, you're, you're pretty limited to what you can see and, and how far you can see. So it's definitely a different type of hunt uh, when you do those types of hunts versus, you know, out in Montana and other areas that are much more wide open. So looking at um, kind of your 2016 resume this year, if you were to kind of look back and reflect on, you know, maybe one of the hunts or something that kind of jumped out at you, you know, like say you've been to British Columbia, you spent time in Africa, Oregon, Kansas, and Georgia, and I'm sure you were at some other places this year. Is there anything, you know, this year that just kind of jumps out at you that uh, was something really special or something really cool uh, uh, that kind of just rises up amongst all the, the trips that you went on this year? Well, being with Donna when she got her goat in BC was, was wonderful. And that is some of the most beautiful country on earth. I, I just love it. It's not a place I can get to with that much frequency, but, but Africa's always special. And, uh, this year, uh, gosh, I've been going to Africa for 40 years. And, uh, this year, Donna and I both got Buffalo out of the same herd within about, uh, 90 seconds of each other. Oh, wow. And actually, uh, uh, had them, had them down where we could get a photograph of the two of them together, both nice bulls. So that was really unusual and, and a really special experience. That's cool. That's neat when you can go and, and do that. Uh, 
you know, with your spouse and enjoy the outdoors and do those types of things. Um, you know, they're obviously memories that you'll never forget and they won't either. And I, I think that's, I think it's just really cool. When you plan for a trip like British Columbia, um, obviously there's logistics to, you know, leaving the United States and, and getting into Canada. Kind of, kind of maybe just walk me through briefly on, you know, kind of where you fly into and are you taking bush planes to get to locations or is it, are you renting vehicles and driving? Kind of how does that work when you go to a place like BC? Well, it depends on, it, it depends on where you're going. But uh, in, in this case, we uh, uh, cleared customs, Canadian customs in Vancouver and then flew up to uh, Smithers. And then from there, a float plane. And as I said, the weather was terrible. We actually were stuck in town for two days waiting for the weather to clear so we could even fly into camp. It was a little bit rough. But, uh, uh, you know, every area is different. Uh, Mozambique is another area where you, it's a long trip. You, you fly into Joburg and uh, then, uh, then uh, a commercial flight to Byra and then a charter flight into camp. Uh, and of course, firearms clearance is something you always have to pay attention to, and that's that's different in every place with every country. So it does take some time and and uh, uh, not really any expertise because the information's out there, and if, if it's an outfitted hunt, then they're going to help you with the paperwork. But you, you do have to plan ahead and make sure you cross all the T's and dot all the I's. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I one experience we had in Argentina, um, we were clearing customs we had just gotten off our plane in uh, Buenos Aires and uh, we were in the process of going through customs with our rifles and you know and I'm sure you've experienced this because I know you've been to Argentina but you know there they have military police mm-hmm. right and they stand there and you know they've got fully automatic weapons and they don't speak very good English and that was part of the problem we had is we had a little bit of an issue with one of the serial numbers on one of the firearms in our group and uh, it had cleared L.A., uh, but it, there were some issues when we got and it. It just makes the communication difficult um, when they're speaking, a, you know, a Spanish dialect that is different than our dialect here. Uh, well, it's and it's hard to communicate. It, it's yeah. intimidating. It, yeah. it makes you nervous. But, you know, generally speaking, uh, it's it's just business and they yeah. want the tourism business. And uh, uh, serial numbers are an issue. You've got to make sure that they're correct on the paperwork. But usually these problems can be worked through. Yeah. That's why I like going places like Australia, New Zealand, because usually at least they can, you know, speak our language and they may have a little bit of a uh, English dialect, but usually a little easier to get through. When I went to to New Zealand, I took my archery equipment, so I didn't have to deal with uh, bringing a rifle. But I've done that in the past, and again, it is it's a lot of logistics and a lot of planning to to make sure that those trips go smooth. Okay. Um, let's let's look ahead into 2017 a little bit, and uh, I want to talk a little bit about. Um, and I, I know you're big, uh, especially kind of now. There's a little bit of a low period for it, but I know in January and in, in the spring time, it's going to get busy again for you, uh, specifically around trade shows, because uh, I know you're you're very heavily involved uh, in a lot of the conservation organizations out there. So maybe just give us a little bit of a highlight uh, in 17 on where you'll be and some of the trade shows uh, that you're going to attend this year. Well, this year we start with the Dallas Safari Club, which is January uh, uh, 5 to 7, uh, 5 to 8. And uh, then the SHOT Show is in the middle of the month. And of course, that's a major trade show for me. And, and the problem this year is... Uh, the sheep show interferes with the shot show, and, and I've got to be at the shot show, so that uh, that takes care of that. And then Safari Club International show is, uh, I want to say February four to seven, 
And uh, so that those are the major trade shows. Then, of course, I'll go to the uh, NRA show uh, uh, later on in the year. Yep. And I believe it's in Atlanta this year. That's what yeah, I was talking yeah. to Jason. I think he had said that it, it was in Atlanta. Yeah, so I, I noticed that, too. I'm, I'm planning on attending the Sheep Show in Reno this year, and uh, that's a neat show. I've, I've been to that a few that's years a in the show. past. It's yeah, a lot of fun. They do a great job, too. Yeah. Yeah, but it's amazing when you look at, you were talking about some of the numbers uh, around the buffalo in Mozambique, and it's amazing what uh, we've done with sheep in the United States as well. Actually, the just the Federation of Sheep and what they've done to conserve the, the bighorn and, and all the different species of sheep out there. They really have. I mean, the increase in the last 30 years has been just exponential. They've done a, a wonderful job. Yeah. Okay. Um, so SCI, I know you're very heavily affiliated. I think even last year you had hosted um, a dinner or a banquet or something during the SCI show in, in Las Vegas last year. Um, do you have any plans? Or you typically have a booth there? Or are you are always you bouncing have, around? Always have a booth there. I've got a new book out this year, so I'll be there. I'll be there selling pieces of paper, uh, and I do I do uh, two or three seminars during the course of the SCI show. Likewise, Dallas Safari Club. Okay. In our, do you typically, I know because you've got multiple sponsors, do you float in between some of the sponsor companies that, you, that you're that uh, you you know with, or do you specifically stay at your booth during this time? I pretty much sign? stay at my booth for Dallas and SCI, and then uh, I go to some of our TV show sponsors' booths uh, during the SHOT Show. Okay. And SHOT Show's in Vegas, right? That's right. Yeah, SHOT Show's in Vegas. Have you ever attended the Western uh, Hutting Expo in Salt Lake City? Have you ever heard of that I have, one? yeah. yeah. It's, a, it's, a, it's a great show. I haven't been able to make it for the last several years, but it's it's a very good show. Yeah. I'm planning to uh, hopefully attend that one. It's in February. I think it's in the, the second week of February. So what I like about that show, um, you know, it's it's all about hunting. And I think it's cool, you know, because I, I, I'm, I'm a big outdoorsman and I really, really enjoy fishing. Uh, which SCI provides a lot of that opportunities because they've got a lot of the, the guided fishing trips that they do at SCI. But the Western Hunting Expo, it is specifically 100% hunting. And it's just cool because you've got a lot of like-minded people in the same room talking basically the same language. So it, yeah, it's cool. It, it really is a great show. And the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation is as well. And I mean, I'd love to make them all, but Lucas, I can't. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, between... Hunting and family and life, you got to find some medium in between all that. And deadlines. Let's not forget deadlines. Yeah, deadlines. Are, yeah, that's right. You've got a book out, so that's busy as well. One of the things I was looking through the uh, the SCI magazine for, for 17, and I was just kind of um, going through some of the, the, the different hunts and, and some of the different merchandise, and I noticed there's a 10-day Namibia hunt that it looks like um, they're going to be auctioning off with you. Mm-hmm. So that's cool. Maybe tell us a little bit about that hunt. Well, it's with uh, Barry Birchill's uh, Frontier Safaris, and I've done uh, uh, I've done auction hunts with him before, where uh, I'll, I'll accompany the winner. And you know, they they run a great camp. It's it's lovely country, and uh, yeah, just a fun hunt. Yeah. Have you found on some of those? I know, like you say, you've done these in the past. It. Is it difficult to adjust to folks that you don't know, or is it is it a different experience based on maybe not knowing them versus going with someone that you know or you've hunted with? Well, you know, in a in a camp like that, uh, unless you have a full group to yourself, there's always going to be some folks in camp that you don't know. But uh, uh, that's really never been a problem for me. You, you know, you you meet new people, and uh, one of the things you learn is that uh, most hunters are really good folks. Yeah. No, it's 
we all share the same the same you know the same thought concepts and you know it's when you like I say when you have like-minded people together typically there's not a problem of getting along with those those types of folks so that's cool so that's a little bit about our you know your trade show uh, really where you're going to be uh, for the next few months what do you have uh, planned or in line so far for any hunts that you have for 2017 well it's, it's always a busy year but uh uh, I'm going to go on a hunt in Armenia, which is in uh, kind of Central Asia in March, and uh, uh, back to Africa in the in the summertime, and uh, hopefully do a little turkey hunting in the spring. And I haven't even planned the fall. <laughs> wow! So Armenia, what what will you be after in Armenia? Oh, the Armenian mouflon and uh, mid eastern brown bear. It's kind of an interesting place. Okay. And where does Armenia sit in conjunction to, is it in Europe or Eastern Europe? Uh, it's in, uh, I would say, Western Asia. It's okay. uh, south of uh, uh, Georgia, which is part of part of the Russian Federation. And uh, it borders uh, 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 Azerbaijan to the, to the south. Uh, so it's kind of in, uh, in, in what you'd call Western Asia. Okay. And it's an interesting country. Yeah, I've I've never obviously I've never been to that part of the world. I've I've wanted to go hunt ibex and and you know in Turkey and some of those parts of of, of Europe, but I've never been to any part of of Asia or, or Europe, and that's something that's definitely on on my bucket list. So you talked about spring turkey. Do you have plans locally for that, or is that something that you go back to Kansas for? Well, I go back to Kansas mostly. Uh, we've we've got uh, very good turkeys on on my place. Uh, we we don't. I don't guide turkeys. I'm not a good enough turkey hunter to guide a turkey hunter, <laughs> but I can usually get a bird for myself. And yeah. uh, then in early May, I'm going to uh, uh, Mexico for the Gould's turkey, which is actually something I've never done. Wow, that's cool. Yeah, a, a friend of mine he um, guides for Gould's down in in uh, in Mexico, and uh, you know to get your slam, you've got to get you know a Gould's turkey, which is the only one I think. I think they have some Gould's turkeys in Arizona, but I think you have to go to Mexico to mm-hmm. get them in order to to get your slam. So that's cool. In Kansas, are you are, are those Merriams or Easterns or what? We're breed? really in the hybrid zone. We're we're very close to where they're pure Eastern turkeys. And uh, looking at my birds, I can't tell that they have any Rio Grande in them. But we're technically in the hybrid zone. Okay, that's cool. Very cool. Um, just a general question I want to ask, and, and it's it's kind of a broad question, but when you think about, you know, the places you've been and obviously over your career, is there any one place that stands out in terms of an adventure or something that you've done that um, you're laughing? So obviously there's something, but just really that, that kind of rises to the top in terms of some of the things that you've done in your lifetime? I, I get asked that a lot, and, and really my, my standard answer is... Uh, it's either the last hunt or the next hunt. Yeah, I, I love it all, and it, you can't you can't rank these things. It's, That's it's, cool. It's, it's impossible. That's cool. Um, while we're on the subject, tell it. Can you tell us just a little bit about your recent book that you released, and in kind of just a little general information about it? Oh, the most recent one is is called uh, the Accurate Rifle and 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 Rifleman, and it's uh, it's a combination book. It's it's about. Uh, just just raw rifle accuracy and and how to obtain it, and then also about shooting. So it it, it really combines uh, both technical accuracy and and uh, how to shoot tips. And uh, it came out just a few weeks ago in in limited edition form. The limited edition is now gone, so the the trade will be released now. And so the first time we'll have the trade is at the the Dallas Safari Club. Okay. 
Cool. And if someone was to want to get a copy of that, could they go to your website sure. or could they? Yeah. Yeah. So it's available. Com. Okay. And, and the only hook I've got, obviously I compete with my publisher, but uh, I can do autograph copies and he can't. That's cool. Yeah. <laughs> he probably can't reenact that part of it. No. Okay. Um, just to, to kind of segue and, and change gears a little bit, uh, I want to talk a little bit about, um, you know, the election. And I, I know, you know, both you and I are pretty passionate uh, about this subject, and we've, we've talked about this before. But I think it's important to know that, uh, you, know, you know, where we're at currently in the nation, I think with, with the new president that we have elected, uh, you know, I, I see a lot of changes and a lot of good things based on, uh, you know, Donald Trump coming in as being the next president of the United States. And obviously, you know, his son, Donald Trump Jr., is very involved in the outdoors. I saw him speak at a sheep show many years ago uh, and uh, had a newfound respect, um, not only for him, uh, but also I think the family, just based on, uh, you know, his vision and and their visions of the outdoors and obviously the Second Amendment and, and things that we all cherish very much. But you know, when you think about this election, Craig, um, you know, what do you think this means kind of for our hunting community and really, you know, for the future uh, of our outdoors? Well, I'm, I'm extremely hopeful. Uh, not only Donald Trump Jr., but also his brother, Eric. They're, they're both hunters. Uh, they're, they're very serious about it, very passionate about it. Uh, uh, Donald Trump, our, our uh, president-elect, is, is not himself a hunter, but he's... Uh, been uh, very staunch in support of the Second Amendment. So, uh, and and obviously his opponent uh, was not a Second Amendment fan. So, yeah. uh, I'm I'm very very hopeful. And, and you know, for me, that does kind of come down to a, a one issue election. Uh, you have one candidate who's uh, pretty much vowed to do away with the Second Amendment if she possibly can, and you have uh, the other candidate who's vowed to uphold it uh, if he possibly can. Well, that's that's a pretty easy choice for me. Yeah. But uh, having uh, 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 Donald Jr. and and Eric as hunters and perhaps whispering in their dad's ear now and again on on that subject, I'm just very very hopeful and, and really positive. And uh, so far, I am tremendously excited by uh, uh, the folks that that he's hiring as as his cabinet. Uh, yeah. I worked for uh, General Mattis a number of times. The uh, uh, incoming Secretary of Defense. Uh, uh, I know General Flynn, and uh, uh, I know the the general that he's hired as uh, Homeland Security. Very, very good people, great people, great Americans. I just feel like in in so many ways we're in such good hands now. Yeah, and I think part of it is you know when you when you think of Donald Trump, and you know obviously the media portrays a different person, but you know he's surrounding himself with good people. And I think what's more important about being the president is, you know, obviously being presidential and, and being polished in that respect, but having good people around you is what I think makes, you know, for a good president. And I know the, the new secretary of state, um, you know, who's coming in, uh, who is an, you know, an ex CEO of Exxon Mobil, which I think is important because, you know, in a, in a time where uh, energy is very important right now, you know, I think he's got someone appointed that's going to help us, uh, you know, maybe take, you know, the United States to that next level. So we're not always so dependent on foreign aid and other things. So I, I do see a lot of good things coming from, you know, this election. And, um, you know, clearly it was interesting. I was reading about, um, you know, going up to the election. Um, there was a document, an article in, in uh, one of the magazines that I that I uh, am a member to. And 
one of the, the articles talked about how Hillary Clinton said her number one competitor or fear was the NRA. <laughs> it wasn't ISIS. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't all the stuff happening around us, you know, in the world. It was the NRA was her number one fear and competitor. And to me, that's scary when you look at the world and everything that's happening with, uh, you know, obviously all the terrorist activities happening. And she is more worried about the NRA than anything else. Well, and, and I think perhaps she should have been because uh, I think uh, America's uh, uh, law-abiding gun owners probably had an awful lot to do with the results of this election. Now, we may never know that, but uh, the NRA has certainly never endorsed a candidate as strongly as they, they endorsed Mr. Trump. And uh, But, you know, it was uh, the election was such a media circus that I, I don't think we know the real Donald Trump yet. I, I think yeah. we will. Uh, but so far, I'm, I'm pleased with the people he's hiring. He's surrounding himself with, with good people who, who uh, I think are going to do a great job for this country. Yep. No, I absolutely agree. Well, very cool. Um, just to kind of recap, um, you know, we've, we've talked about some, some pretty neat stuff today, and, and it's just really neat having Craig on the show. You know, Craig brings so many years of, of knowledge and history, uh, not only uh, from his career as being a Marine, but also as a professional hunter. And, you know, his, his, his laundry list, if you will, of, of places and animals that he's taken uh, is, is quite amazing. So have you filled your North American 29? I have. You have. Okay. And obviously you've got a sheep slam and you've pretty much probably captured all of the, all the different uh, things that every outdoorsman would, would like to have. So, so that's really neat uh, that we're able to, to capture some of that today. So, um, you know, just kind of in closing, um, you know, in terms of some of our comments and, and things that our listeners can take away, I, I, I think specifically, you know, get out and, uh, you know, get on Craig's website and, uh, you know, obviously help the cause. He's, he's got multiple uh, publications and books out there. If you ever want to know anything about Africa, he's probably the guy that you would want to uh, talk to and, and get some insight from. Uh, and uh, also social media. So Craig, maybe just tell the listeners a little bit how, you know, they could get a hold of you. I know uh, you said you're not super tech savvy, but I think you do have some social media platforms that oh, you yeah, utilize. We do, we do Facebook, uh, uh, look for, uh, uh, Craig Boddington and the Boddington Experience, and uh, we do we do Instagram and so forth. Uh, you know, as I say, it's a multimedia world, and uh, yeah. and uh, so yeah, you simply have to be involved in those platforms, and yeah. we are. Yep. No, it is. It's it's interesting to think, you know, ten years ago, how we used to do this, and for me, it was having little photo albums. So if I would go on a trip. I would, I would take my digital prints to Target, I'd print them off, and I'd have a little album to show people, you know, hey, here was a recent hunt I went on. Now it's like you pull up your phone and you go, yeah. you know, here, well, here's my, here's my recent trip I went here. Or it's just interesting how things have changed, and, and really from a social media platform. Um, some would argue it's better. Some would argue would say, I don't like it, but it is what it is, right? It's That's here to right. stay. It's and either better or worse. It, it just is. It is what it is, Yeah. <laughs> So, Craig, any uh, closing comments today, just uh, either based on anything we talked about or, or any just closing comments you'd like to share to listeners today? Well, uh, Lucas, I appreciate being with you. Uh, always, always fun. And, uh, you know, we are neighbors and we really should spend more time together. But uh, 
You know, it's going to be an interesting year. We're going to see how uh, the new administration unfolds, but uh, I have tremendous hope now, both for uh, both for our sport and, and for uh, the Americas we want her to be. Yeah, no, I agree. I think it could only get better. And some would say it, it could have gotten worse. And I mean, yeah, I, I guess it could have gotten worse, but uh, I think we're in a much better place now. Uh, and, uh, you know, just some of the little things we're starting to see already are, are, are moves in the right direction and, and positive for the country. So that's, that's where I know both of our, our, our values set sit and where we want to be. So that's good. Okay. Well, I would plan to hopefully catch up with you. Um, like I say, I'm, I'm not certain I'm going to make SCI, uh, but I'm planning to do the Western show in Salt Lake City. So I may not catch you at any of the trade shows, but this spring is going to be pretty busy. Uh, I'm going to get in some turkey hunting here in California. Um, so maybe you and I can hook up and do some of that. It's one of the cool things about living on the Central Coast is is um, there are actually quite a few hunting opportunities here. There really here. are. This is great hunting country. Yeah, where we live, not only in the summertime with, with, with deer hunting, but, uh, you know, if you're fortunate enough to ever draw an elk tag or a sheep tag, which is... I think I'm 11 years in now, and I'm hoping in another 11 to 12 years I might draw one of those tags. But uh, the pig hunting year-round is really good, uh, and typically you can draw a deer tag every year and be hunting either in the Sierras or even in the areas on the Central Coast. And then there's always spring turkey season, which is always fun, uh, chasing around Rio Grande turkeys here in California. So um, it's going to be a busy year, but hopefully uh, we can catch up at some point uh, you know, after the first of the year uh, and uh, continue to share some of these adventures that we have. So, Craig, I want to thank you for being on today uh, and thanks for your insight uh, and just want to wish you a happy holidays because it is that time of year uh, and look forward to our, our next time that we can spend some time together. Well, thanks, Lucas, and happy holidays to you and yours and to all of our listeners, and it's good to be with you. All right. Thanks, everyone, for listening. We'll see you guys in 2017. Take care. First and foremost, I want to thank all of our listeners. The Rod and Arrow Outdoors podcast is produced every other week for your enjoyment, and show notes are found on the podcast feed and at our website, www.rnaoutdoors.com forward slash podcast. Feel free to add the podcast to your favorite RSS feed. We are available on Podbean and iTunes for iOS slash Apple users Go to podcasts on your Apple device, search for RNA Outdoors, and hit the purple subscribe button. When doing this, it will automatically upload when new podcasts are loaded, and they will download into your queue. When you subscribe to the podcast using the podcast app for iOS or using iTunes on your Mac or PC, you are subscribing to the podcast updates by that particular podcast producer. With iCloud, you can synchronize your podcast subscriptions across all of your devices. For Android users, you can access the podcast through Podbean or use our website, again, www.rnaoutdoors.com forward slash podcast. In addition, under the RNA Outdoors podcast channel, please leave a review and a five-star rating. These reviews help boost our popularity and outreach. You can also follow us on our social media platforms, Twitter, at RNA Outdoors, Instagram, Hashtag Rod N Arrow Outdoors and Facebook RNA Outdoors. All links are in the show notes as well. If you like what you heard, we hope you'll pass along our channel to your friends and colleagues. Please join us next time for another edition of the Rod and Arrow Outdoors podcast.